If you have your Bibles, would you turn with me to Matthew 13? I want to read a passage out of there. I want to read from 24 to verse 30. That's Matthew 13, 24 to 30. This is Jesus speaking. Another parable put he forth unto them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is likened unto a man which soweth, sowed good seed in his field. But while men slept, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat and went his way. But when the blade was sprung up and brought forth fruit, there appeared the tares also. So the servants of the householder came and said unto him, Sir, didst not thou sow good seed in the field? From whence then hath it tares? He said unto them, An enemy hath done this. The servant said unto him, Wilt thou then that we go and gather them up? But he said, Nay, lest while ye gather up the tares, ye root up also the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And in the time of harvest, I will say to the reapers, Gather ye together the tar first the tares, and bind them in bundles to burn them, but gather the wheat into thy barn. I would like to focus on verse 29 for just a little bit, but first I want to give you a matter of perspective. In studying this passage out, I, I, I did my due diligence, and I read and I compared Scripture with Scripture. I did my best to do that. And when I was all done... Just by way of check, I started doing a little bit of cross-referencing. And I went to the Treasure of Scripture Knowledge, which is a great big center column reference, and I looked up Matthew thirteen twenty nine, And what that book does is it cross-references sermon preached by people over the last 500 years. Anyone that made reference to this verse, they recorded it and put the comment down there. When I looked up this verse, I found no cross-references. So then I went to Sermon Audio, which has 2.6 million sermons on different subjects, typed in this verse. I found zero sermons on this verse. But Lord willing, I'd like to talk about this perspective on judgment. Now before I do, I want to lay some groundwork here. Because I'm always afraid when we're talking about, a, basically what this subject is, it's, it's, it's be careful of premature judgment. And God's judgment is always perfect. Sometimes mine's delayed and sometimes mine's too quick. But his is always just right. And one day maybe I can be more like him. But that's the goal, to try to get a little more like him today than I was yesterday. That if I were to go to Matthew 7, 1 through 5, here's a warning about judgment. Let me read that for you. Judge not that ye be not judged, for with what judgment ye judge, ye shall be judged. And with what measure ye meet, it shall be measured to you again. And why beholdest the mote in that is in thy brother's eye, but considerest not the beam that is own eye, thine own eye? Or how wilt thou say to thy brother, Let me pull out the mote out of thine eye, and behold, the beam is in thine own eye? Thou hypocrite! First cast out the beam of thine own eye, and then thou shalt see clearly to cast out the mote of thy brother's eye. Basically, this is a warning against hypocritical judgment. Now notice it's not saying don't judge, it's saying don't judge hypocritically. Let's go to a second warning, and I'm going to go to John 7 and verse 24. 
And it says, judge not according to the appearance, but judge righteous judgment. I would say this is a warning against wrong criteria. Dr. Reverend Martin Luther King Jr., he preached a very famous discourse that he gave. And he said, I have a dream that one day my children will not be judged. But how does it finish? According to the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. See, he did not have a problem with judgment. He had a problem with the criteria used to make the judgment. And that's what this verse is saying. Don't judge based on the appearance. Judge righteous judgment. And we got one warning. It says a warns against hypocritical judgment. Here's a warning against wrong criteria judgment. Here's a third one. I'm in 1 Corinthians 5, 1 through 5. Here's a warning against never judgment or no judgment. Finding that middle ground is really tough. No wonder why I couldn't find any sermons on Matthew 13, 29. 1 Corinthians 5, 1 through 5, Paul is talking to a church, and actually they were proud that they didn't judge. It is reported commonly that there is fornication among you, and such fornication as is not so much as named among the Gentiles, that one should have his father's wife. And ye are puffed up, and have not rather mourned, and he that had done this deed might be taken away from you, for verily as absent in body, but present in spirit, have judged already, as though I were present concerning him that hath done this deed. The son got together with a stepmother type situation, and, and, and Paul said, that's wrong. Basically, that's wrong. And he says, judge that thing. He says, I've already judged it. And you guys are taking be prideful because you're just letting it go on. So I'm looking at this thing and I think, okay, here's another warning. This is a warning against never judgment. Don't judge hypocritically. Don't use the wrong criteria. But, but, but you got to judge. There's times where you have to make a judgment. And there's one more. I want to go to Luke chapter 13, 6 through 9. And he spake also this parable concerning a man with a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came and sought fruit thereon, and found none. Then said unto the dresser of his vineyard, Behold, these three years I come seeking fruit of this fig tree, and find none. Cut it down. Why cumbereth it in the ground? And he said, answering him, said unto him, Let it alone this year also, till I dig about it, and dung it, and fertilizer. And if it bear fruit well, and if not, then after that I will cut it down. So this is an example, I think, of an impatient judgment. There are times where, hey, I've given the guy three years. I know, but have you ever took time aside and really worked with a person? Maybe give him that TLC for a little while and then see what happens. So I would call this, this is a warning against impatient judgment. And then finally, I want to get to our text today, and that is the Luke, Matthew 13, here's 29 and 30. Let me read that again for you. But he said, Nay, lest while ye gather up tares, ye root up also the wheat with them, let both grow together until harvest. And in the time of harvest, I will say to the reapers, Gather ye together first the tares, and bind them into bundles, and burn them. But gather the wheat into my barn." So the question is, is how do we as Christians judge? I, I, you know, how do you find that middle lane? I made the comment that God always does it just right. And we're floundering and sometimes we overcorrect and we wait too long. And the next time we don't do quick enough. And sometimes we do it too quick because we overcorrect. And we're always aiming at this middle road and, and Lord help us, huh? 
And, and I, I'm sorry, but I can't give you a formula because in the Matthew 13, this is after one year. In the Luke 13, it's after four years. I can't give you a recipe. Yeah, you have different children with different abilities and different capabilities, and some you've spent time with and taught them the lesson, and this is the fourth time through, and some of you haven't taught the lesson, and this is the first time through, and, you know, it's just, it's hard. It's hard to judge that. So, you know, parents, it's, parenting is an art. It's not a science. Pastoring is an art, not a science. And when I say an art, you know what I mean. It, it just depends. You've got to read the signs. What I'd like to do is I'd like to go into the life of David, and I want to pick a very familiar story. Because David is a king, and he messed up big time. But his predecessor was a king, and he messed up big time. And he kicked Saul out of office, but he didn't kick David out of office. So is God a hypocrite? Of course not. Let's look at the life of David from the standpoint of the parable. Now, I'm still trying to imagine. I've got this land, and I've, 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 I've got it all ready for harvest. And I went and got my broadcaster, and I'm, 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 the seeds are going out, and I'm spinning it, and it's spinning them out, and it's flying them. I don't know if, if any of you with a farming background know. You're broadcasting the seed, and it gets all spread out. And then all of a sudden at night, someone comes through after and, and puts in weeds, stairs, and they spread in the same place. And then you go out and you start looking, and all of a sudden, shoots are popping up. And some are pretty green, and they got little bitty wheat berries on them. And there's other tears that show, blades that show up, and they don't have wheat berries. Oh, you think, well, that's easy to tell which one's not and which isn't. A plant can have wheat berries, and it can get knocked off by the wind. And sometimes... A plant can be a little bit delayed in bearing the wheat berries. That's why the Lord of the field said, hold off, it's too early, let's give it some time, and let's really give it time to manifest itself. That would be premature. So that's the figurative. Let's go with David, okay? I think he springs up, and we're going to see a lot of fruit in him. I'm going to take this, and I'm going to look at this like a play. Let's look at Act 1 of his life. In Act 1, everything's rosy. In 1 Samuel 13 and 14, here's something said about David. It says, but now thy kingdom shall not continue. He's talking to King Saul. He's about ready to get judged and have the kingdom taken away. And he says, the Lord hath sought him a man after his own heart. And the Lord commanded him to be captain over his people because thou hast not kept that which is the Lord commanded thee. So here's a description of who David is. And he's a man after God's own heart. Okay, I would have to say that, you know, just at this point in time, if I'm looking at him and I'm looking at two plants, a tear and a wheat, and I'm saying, well, here's a pretty good fruit when God says this guy's a man after my own heart. He's got at least one wheat berry. And I go to 1 Samuel 16, 13. So now Samuel comes and it's time to ordain King David. And it says, Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brethren and the Spirit of the Lord came upon David from that day forward. So Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. So when he was ordained to be king, uh, the Spirit of the Lord came on him. I'd have to definitely say that was another wheat berry on King David. Amen? So right now he's looking like a beautiful wheat plant. Just, just, just what you'd want to drop in a textbook. Let's go forward into 1 Samuel seventeen forty-five. This is when David takes on Goliath. Notice what he says. 
Then said David to the Philistine, Thou comest to me with a sword, and a, with a spear and a shield, but I come to thee in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom thou hast defiled. So when David faces this big galoot, he's not saying, I'm going to whip you so I can get the king's daughter as my, and I'm, uh, as my wife and, and be the son-in-law to the king. That was the prize that was offered, but that's not why he did it. He did not do it to get the accolades of other shoulders. He did not do it to say, I told you so to his big brothers. He did it simply because this guy was defiling the Lord's name. Sounds like another wheat berry on the plant of David. Pretty good fruit. And then finally in 1 Samuel 18, 28, And Saul saw and knew that the Lord was with David. Now Saul hated David. He was jealous of him. But even his enemy recognized that God was in the presence of David. You know what? How could he tell that? Because he saw wheat berries on David. At the end of Act 1, we're looking at a pretty nice looking plant, a wheat plant. And we're looking at just overflowing with wheat berries. And we're thinking, voila, this guy's great. So he was a man after God's own heart. The Spirit had filled him. He'd come in the name of the Lord. And also the Lord was with David. Okay, let's go to Act 2 in the life of David. We're going into 2 Samuel 11.1. 1. This account is, is very familiar with you. But I want you to notice how a man that looks so positive and has so much spiritual fruit can break the second half of the Ten Commandments just like that. 2 Samuel 11.1 1. And it came to pass, after the year was expired, at the time of the king's go into battle, that David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they destroyed the children of Ammon and besieged Rabbah, and David tarried still at Jerusalem. So you're thinking at this wheat plant, and you're looking at him, and he's got some berries. And, you know, he really, as a general, he should have been with his soldiers, but he decided to stay back. Well, that's not too bad, is it? You know, that's how it usually starts, with that's not too bad. I can miss church one time. It's no big deal. Second Samuel 11.2, And it came to pass in eventide that David arose from off his bed and walked upon the rooftop of the king's house. Guess what? In the evening, that's when women took their baths. And they took baths on the rooftops. And that was the custom, and David knew it. So when he took this stroll in the middle of the night, he knew what he was doing. And from the rooftop, he saw a woman washing herself, and the woman was very beautiful to look upon. Okay, well... That's not too, well, now we're getting too, yeah, I guess that is kind of bad, isn't it? And the thing is, is when he set his eyes on this woman, he didn't turn his head. He went from admiring her to desiring her. He stared too long. Now that is pretty bad. So maybe he's a wheat plant and maybe one of those berries have now fallen off. Maybe two of them have fallen off. Verse 3. And David sent and inquired after the woman, and one said, Is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? Eliam is a mighty man. Uriah is a mighty man. These are his trusted soldiers, and he's going to send for the daughter of one of his trusted soldiers, and he's going to send for the wife of one of his trusted soldiers. 
I think a couple more wheat berries just fell off. If it was my wife, I think I'm about ready to burn that wheat plant. But let's see what God does. Verse 4. And David sent messengers and took her, and she came in unto him, and he lay with her, for she was purified from her uncleanness, and she returned unto her house. So he got her, and he committed the act of adultery with her. Now you're thinking, how many wheat berries? Well, maybe he's got a couple wheat berries. Maybe there's a couple just dangling. So I ask you right now, if we were to look at David's life right here, right here, He's broken many of the commandments. He's about ready to break the rest of them in a second. And you're looking at David. Does he look like a tear or does he look like a wheat plant? Let's go back to our parable in Matthew 13. You going to yank that thing up? Well, God didn't yank him up. He yanked up King Saul, but he didn't yank up King David. What's the difference? That's what we want to find out. So I'm still in 2 Samuel 11. Let me read 5 and 6. And the woman conceived and sent and told David and said, I am with child. And David sent to Joab saying, send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah to David. So all of a sudden he committed this terrible deed, this terrible sin. And it has consequences because now there's a baby. So he's thinking, oh no, what am I going to do? Here's the first attempt to cover it up. He's going to call for Uriah. Send me Uriah from the battle under the pretense of getting a scouting report of how the battle's going. Verse 7 through 9. And when Uriah was come up, David demanded of him how Joab did and how the people did and how the war prospered. And David said to Uriah, go down to the house and wash thy feet. And Uriah departed out of the king's house, and there followed him a mess of meat with the king, from the king. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his lord and went not to his house. So he figured out, okay, she's pregnant. If I can get her husband to go back home and spend the night with her, I'm off the hook. They won't know who the father, they didn't have DNA tests back then. I'm off the hook. But, but Uriah is such an honorable guy when it's time, and he goes to the king's house and he says, go home, take a shower, rest in your own house. He says, I can't do that. He said, my men are fighting a war right now. How can I go enjoy the comforts of home, enjoy the comforts of my wife when my, my men are in the middle of battle? So he ref- and, and he gave him all this food and Uriah walked out and he slept on the porch. He says, I can't, I can't go home. I can't do this to my men. I'm a, I'd be a hypocrite. Now I'm going to read 11 and 13. Uriah said, The ark and Israel and Judah abide in tents. And my Lord, because David says, Why? Why didn't, why didn't you go home? And he says, This is his answer. And he says, They are camped in open, my soldiers are camped in open fields. Shall I then go into my own house to eat and to drink and to lie with my wife? As thou livest and as thy soul livest, I will not do this thing. And when David called him, he did eat and drink before him, and he made him drunk, and at even he went out to lie in his bed of the servants of the Lord. So, so the second attempt at a cover-up, yeah, he, he sends him home, and he won't go home, he won't go with his wife, and he says, I know, I'll get them all liquored up. We'll, we'll lose all the sensibility, we'll lose all the inhibitions. So he gets Uriah drunk, and he says, now go home. 
But even in his drunken state, he would not go home and lay with his wife. Oh, David's upset. Now, how many wheat berries does he have now? Maybe there's a half of one dangling. But he's going to get rid of this one in a second. Now, as we read this story, we're getting angry at David, aren't we? How could he do this to a loyal man? But you know what? God is not. God is getting angry. There's going to be repercussions of it. He's going to get penalized for it. But you know what? He didn't burn him. He didn't kick him out of office. Why? Second Samuel eleven fourteen and 15. Here's the third attempt at a cover-up, and this one's going to do the cover-up. The only problem is he's covering up for men. He couldn't cover it up for God. And it came to pass in the morning that David wrote a letter to Joab and set it by the hand of Uriah. His, oh, I mean, doesn't that get your gall? He says, kill this guy. And you give the message to the guy you want killed to him, and he's the one delivering the message. And he wrote the letter, and he said, set you Uriah in front in the forefront of the hottest battle and retire from him that he may sit and die. You know, where the battle's the toughest, you send them out there with a couple soldiers, you give a whistle, and when you give a whistle, everybody run and leave them out there all by himself, or the enemy will kill them. I think he lost all his wheat berries. He just committed the last half of the Ten Commandments. Everything from, from the lying and the adultery, the stealing, the coveting, the murder, just, just did them all. Let's go to Act 3. Remember we're doing a play? We're looking at the first act and everything's nice and there's this nice wheat plant and it's got all these pretty wheat berries on it. We go to the second act and a great big storm's coming. It's knocked all the wheat berries off of there. And then what David does is he writes this psalm. The reason why you can notice this psalm is because you never find anything of the sort from King Saul. Saul is a different kind of person than King David. Well, the thing is, is, you know, when do you judge? When do you not judge? It depends. It depends on the reaction of the child. It depends on the reaction of the person. It depends on the reaction of the saint. It depends on the reaction of the king. The first thing I want you to notice is David takes full responsibility for his sin. Remember when we looked at pride, oh, two or three weeks ago? And King Saul was our poster child for pride. He never did this. He said, you were late. The people made me do it. It wasn't my fault. Look what he says. Have mercy upon me, O God, according to thy loving kindness, according to my altitude of thy tender mercies. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me from mine iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. For I acknowledge my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Against thee, thee only, have I sinned and done this evil in thy sight, that thou mightest be justified when thou speakest and be clear when thou judgest. Behold, I was shapen in iniquity, and in sin my mother did conceive me. I was born a sinner, and I'm still a sinner. And that's what David says he is. Y'all, that's a start of a confession. So now I'm looking at David, and I'm looking at that plant, and maybe a wheat berry just popped back on. My point is, we can look at folks in life, and if we were to look at David at a second Samuel 11 point in his life, we would say that's a terror. 
But if we looked at him in 1 Samuel, no, that's a wheat plant. We looked at him at the end, that's a wheat plant. And every once in a while, things come in our life. It might be a storm. It might be a freeze. It might be a vermin. It might be a disease. And it knocks all the wheat berries off of us. And we on the other side are looking, and it's, it's scary, because when God's judging me, I want all the breaks and long-suffering and the patience I can get. But when I'm turning and doing to a brother or sister in Christ, I'm not as gracious, am I? We are not as gracious. Six through ten. You know what he's really going to say? He says, change me. He says, please don't let me stay in the sinful state. Look at six through ten. Behold, thou desirest truth in the inward parts, and hidden the hidden part thou shalt make me to know wisdom. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me hear the joy of the gladness, that the bones which thou hast broken may rejoice. Hide thy face from my sins, and blot out my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit. I want truth. I want to know wisdom. Purge me, wash me, clean me. Give me a right spirit and blot it out. Don't leave me in this sinful state. Help me, change me. I think he just popped another wheat berry on him. Psalm 51, 11 and 12. He says, Cast me not away from thy presence. Take not thy Holy Spirit from me. Restore unto me the joy of thy salvation and uphold me with thy free spirit. David is saying, I need you, Lord. I need your presence. I need your spirit. I need your joy for your salvation. I need your free spirit. I I, I can't live without you. I I just, I got to have you. I think he just popped a couple more wheat berries. And then the rest of this passage is basically David is saying, from this day forward, I'm going to do best to follow your will. I'm going to do my best. Now, did he achieve that? No, he fell down again. Another storm came and he had trouble and he lost a couple wheat berries now and then. But you know what? He prayed like this after every one of those sessions. And that's the difference. And let's pretend we're taking a picture, snapshot of David after Act 1. We think, wow, that's a pretty good looking wheat plant. Let's take a picture after 2 Samuel 11, after Act 2. We think, wow, what a mess. That guy's a terror. Then we look after Acts 3 and we think, oh, there's the wheat berries again. And what I'm trying to share with you is when we are forced to do judgment, and we have to do judgment every once in a while. It may be a biological child. It may be another member of the church. It may be a co-worker. You don't want to be too quick, but you don't want to be never judgment. And you just don't want to do a snapshot at one point in time because it could be one of those hard times. We all have weak moments. We don't tear them up and throw them in the fire. We give them some time. We don't give them forever. And Lord, give us wisdom to know when and how and the timing. It's so hard. I know why. I couldn't find any sermons on Matthew 13, 29. There's too many. It depends. I want the rule book so I can just follow the path and know what to do. But it's just not there. So, 
David says, I was born a sinner. I still am a sinner. He says, God changed me. Don't let me stay in the state. And he says, I can't exist without you. And from this day forward, I'm going to do my best to honor you. I've been, for a lot of different reasons, I've been reading um, some books this summer. Part of it was getting ready for school. Part of it was a decision I needed to make. And part of it was I just interested in certain things. And I've been reading, I've read three book, particular books that are about occupations I know nothing about. I read a book on a person that made violins. I read a book on a Japanese farmer. I know nothing about making violins, and I know very little about farming. But I read a third book on bitcoins, which is on central banks. And I found a common theme through all three of those books. You're thinking, what has violin making got to do with farming, got to do with bitcoins? Let me start with a farming example. Maybe this will help explain it. This Japanese farmer was a little bit of a a naturalist. He's very holistic. And uh, he came to the conclusion that uh, pesticides and fertilizers is not God's plan. Even though he didn't use God, he's not a believer. He's not, he said it's not nature's plan. And he came to the conclusion that what happens is, is when you use fertilizers and you use pesticides, what you do is you get a short-term boost in production, but in the long range, you make for a weaker plant. And it becomes dependent on the fertilizers and the pesticides. But when you do nature's way, and he explained what that is, that's taking the chaff and grinding it up and putting that on the ground, not only does it smother out the weeds, but it gets organic and it becomes fertilizer. And it turns out long-term, he is just as efficient and just as profitable. And and the produce is all the heavy machinery and the pesticides and the fertilizer. I thought, wow, God did things pretty smart. And then I read the one on... Central banks. And our central banks are always doing, I'll call it fertilizer and pesticides to help the economy along. With stimulus packages, tax programs and tariffs and minimum wage and all this kind of stuff. And it helps in the short run, but in the long run, it makes for weaker economies, weaker companies and weaker citizens. And because the centralized banks and every country in the world are using these techniques, we've got weaker economies. And then I go to the violin maker, and he was talking about the best teacher he ever had. And it was someone that was pretty much hands-off and just let him wrestle with something and let him learn it on his own, looking over his shoulder and guiding and learning together. So as a teacher, what I did after reading that particular book, I tried something in a math class just earlier in August. I went to my students. These are seniors. I went to my students, and I said, let's pretend it's a year from now. You're in your dorm room. It's 1030 at night, and it's due 8 o'clock in the morning. What are you going to do? He says, yeah, but Mr. Painter, you have not showed me how to do this. I said, it's a year from now. It's 1030 at night. You're in your dorm room, and it's due at 8 o'clock in the morning. What are you going to do? 
And they said, Google it? I said, okay. Well, within 20 minutes, they figured out how to do it. And you know what I heard? I heard, I did it. Not, you did it. I copied you doing it. I did it. I thought, wow, that worked really good. Two days later, I tried it again with something else. And within 20 minutes, they did it again. And they were excited. And I thought, as a teacher, have, for all these years, have I been just putting up too much fertilizer and pesticides, spoon-feeding them the stuff? Have I, been, have I been the farmer? Have I been the central bank? Am I that teacher? Well, I share that when I'm looking at a subject like this, and it could be a church, it could be a minister, it could be my children. Is it possible where I've done too much intervention? Do you understand? I understand there's a time where intervention... Okay, let me give you a a simple example, okay? Let's pretend I, I... I have a nasty fall and I break my leg and it's really bad shape and I go to the hospital and I do an operation and they put a pin in there and they make it strong and it heals up and I, I'm so thankful for the intervention. But the goal is to get back to a natural state. So intervention's okay, but when you get dependent on the intervention, you've got a weak person or a weak plant. And it doesn't matter if it's a plant in a field or... Um, Uh, An economy, that's the way it is. Well, it's the same way with Scripture. What happens is, is I cannot give you a recipe in a lot of situations. I've got to give you some principles, and you need to wrestle with it. All I can see is the confirmation as I see in the world around me, and I think that's the way Jesus taught his disciples. Remember, he sent them out two by two, and after they wrestled and they preached and they fell on their faces and they had successes and they came back and he says, tell me what happened, and they talked about it, he let them wrestle with it. Well, that's the way this judgment is going to go. You're going to have to wrestle with it. You've got to know the parameters. You can judge too quickly, and you can judge not at all. Those are the two the ditches. Stay out of the ditches. And the road you drive down the middle might be different for your oldest child versus your youngest child because they're different. It may be a different situation. It might be a different experience. It might be a different temperament. So, talking about premature judgment. But this is the one thing you've got to understand. Let me read this last passage. It's in 1 John. Let me read 8 through 10. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. We need mercy from God all the time. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. This is what David was counting on. And if we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. All of us have to stand before God at his throne and say we messed up, we deserve the judgment have mercy on me, I'm getting everything I deserve. But at the same time, when we're standing in a position for a biological child or someone else, we need to understand what we just beg God for. And we got to make sure that we are not that Matthew 7 judgment where we're giving, asking for mercy, but we don't give mercy. And I'm sorry, but I can't give that to you in a formula. You're going to have to work at it. You're going to have to practice it. 
And sometimes you will be too quick and sometimes you'll be too long suffering. God's the only one that's always just right. I'm not. But as long as we're working at it and we're praying to God for wisdom, he promises to give us that wisdom and help us corral that. So with that being said, let's go back to our original text. Let me read the parable one more time. Another parable put he forth unto them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is likened unto a man which soweth good seed. But while men slept, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat and went his way. But when the blade sprung up and brought forth fruit, then appeared tares also. Well, it was good fruit in David for a good long while. So the servants and the householder came and said unto him, Sir, didst thou not sow good seed in thy field, and whence, from whence then hast it tares? And he said unto him, An enemy hath done this. The servant said unto him, Wilt thou then that we go and gather them up? He said, Nay, lest while ye gather up the tares, ye root up also the wheat with them. No, I am not going to take David out of the throne. I'm going to take him out for a year or two, but not forever. He root up also the wheat with them. He gave him some long suffering. Let both grow together until the harvest, and in that time I will say to the reapers, Gather ye together first the tares, and bind them in bundles to burn them, but gather the wheat into my barn. I want you to know about King David. He was not guaranteed that throne for the rest of his life. There was a point in time where God would say, enough is enough. And we, he would have judged him in time. But the point was, God was long-suffering with him, just like we beg God to be long-suffering with us. Sometimes we don't even have the sense to ask God to be long-suffering with us. But then we ought to do that also with others. Forgive as you've been forgiven, forbear as he have forbear bore you. And that's what we beg for. So I don't know if I've cleared this or I've confused you. After it's said and done, I don't know if I know anything about parenting anymore. I don't know if I know anything about pastoring anymore. I don't know about being a saint. I don't, I don't know. I'm, I'm a mess. But I just hope that I can look backwards, see my mistakes and say, well, I'm not going to try not to do that again. Notice I'm going to try not to do that again. May the Lord bless you. Thank you.